everybody and welcome to episode one of the Horror Cult Films podcast. I'm David Smith and joining me today we have Jim Lanning and we also have our web mistress Steph. And what we want to do is we want to sit down and talk about some of the movies we love and some of the movies that we hate. So get yourself a nice tea or coffee, get yourself a nice beer or wine or whatever, have a nice walk and uh, let us know what you think afterwards. So, um, without further ado, let's meet the team. Jim, what have you been watching recently? Um, stuff I shouldn't have, really. <laughs> Don't take that the wrong way. Um, Amazon Prime have been a hotbed for really, really bad 90s direct-to-video action films, and I can't stop watching them. I have seen... <laughs> some absolute drivel on there and I love it and we talking Steven Seagal style films are we talking like oh no people you've never heard of <laughs> like, <laughs> in the last few months I've become acquainted with such action stars as uh, Gary Daniels and Jeff Wincott who up until you know I've seen these films I'd never even heard of before and they're terrible actors but they can kick ass that's for sure they're very good um but the best one I've seen, um, there was a Gary Daniels film called White Tiger, which was about, uh, I think he's a cop busting a heroin smuggling ring, like drug dealers, you know, the cliche, but they do it by way of martial arts rather than anything <laughs> else. <laughs> Lots of explosions, car chases, uh, people getting killed, very generic stuff, but I just can't stop watching them at the minute. Oh, <laughs> Gary Daniels, if... For any reason you're listening to this, Jim's a fan. <laughs> and what about you, Steph? Ooh, what have I been watching? Um, <clears throat> so I watched Relic, um, which I think it's Emily Mortimer. I might be wrong. Emily Mortimer stars in it, sorry. So it's an Australian movie. I don't really want to say too much without spoiling it, but I watched the first half ever and I thought, I weren't kind of getting it. It was very slow moving, but I'm glad I stuck with it for the remainder of the movie because um, it, it's powerful. It's it's not your typical horror film, but it, it deals with difficult subjects, and I just think it probably hits home. It's, I do recommend that. Um, Netflix, I'm just currently checking out the Sabrina series because obviously when I was a kid, I used to watch uh, the one they used to show on ITV. That was bit sugary and had Melissa John Hart in it. I enjoyed it and it was good and had the PC games and everything, the point and click stuff. <laughs> Obviously this is darker. Oh and Bill and Ted. I watched oh, the first Bill it? and Ted. Yeah. Um yeah. <laughs> if it was a standalone film on its own, there's just not enough there to be honest. But it's it's more for fans of the film. I think if you watch it on its own you'll totally not understand what the hell's going on. It is uh, something warm and fluffy and sort of a heart back to the previous two films and, you know, they've got returning cast members as well. So it's it's just nostalgia reasons more than anything else. There's a couple of good ideas, but yeah, as a whole, six out of ten. I've never seen Sabrina, but I did watch um, a bit of Riverdale, which I believe is the same universe. All right. And I kind of, I like the murder mystery angle. The problem is, the murder mystery is given the same gravity as Archie's dad not letting him play guitar. That was the thing that really pissed me off about the show. 
Like, you've got, like, your 45 minutes. At the beginning of the episode, you know, someone uncovers a clue. And at the end, they uncover a clue. And that's what you want to see push the plot forward. And you've got this kind of teen drama working alongside it. The sort of thing that Bates Motel was able to do a lot better, you know, with their sort of balance between teenage soap opera stuff, like, uh, will Norman have a date to the prom? while also still keeping an element of tension. Anyway, that's enough in non-horror films. <laughs> what we've all decided to do is look at a few different sub-genres, and we're going to tell you a film we liked and one that we didn't like. Jim, starting with you, with zombie films, what did you put down as a zombie film that you're a fan of? It's, it's got to be Dawn of the Dead, the George Romero version, of course. I, I think this was pretty much my introduction to the genre as a whole. I mean, obviously, when you're a kid, you hear your friends talk about, oh, I watched Freddy Krueger last night, and they describe it to you. It's that your imagination takes you away to somewhere these films don't actually go. So when you see them, it's like, oh. But Dawn of the Dead showed me that horror wasn't just your generic slasher. It was, there was more to it. it it's just really resonated with me. I, I remember quite vividly, actually, I was uh, staying over at my nana's house and I was allowed the TV when she went to bed. And it was on BBC Two, I think. Yeah, I just stayed up watching that all night and it blew my mind. Uh, a lot of people say it's brilliant for its, you know, anti-consumerist messages and stuff like that, but it's just a brilliant film with people getting their guts ripped out and various zombies getting maimed in different ways. It's fantastic. And that Goblin score as well. Barely a day go by when I haven't got something from that film stuck in my head. It's incredible. First time I've ever watched Dawn of the Dead was at a live screening where Goblin were there playing the soundtrack over the movie, and it was brilliant. It was in a wee church in London. <laughs> and I came out thinking that is probably the best way to see it. The zombies in it. Romero was great at finding novel ways to kill them. Yeah, from Night of the Living Dead to all the other ones he's done. It just seems to reinvent it each time, and zombies is probably my favourite subgenre in horror altogether, because not long after seeing Dawn of the Dead, uh, you had games like Resident Evil come along. Absolutely incredible at the time. And still are now, really. But the things people do with these creatures just to ev eviscerate, maim, decapitate, it's its fantastic. Doing it in a mall was inspired. Towards the end, when you've got Tom Savini and his army of, uh, well, bad guys, I suppose, that just sends things up another notch and it just escalates. But one of the subtler things is that with the zombies, it doesn't matter how safe you are, it doesn't matter what barricades have got eventually one of them always gets you all it takes is that one bite and that's it isn't it it's like the grim figure of death it may take a while but at some point it's gonna get you steph are you a fan of dawn of the dead i'm not a great lover of the genre to be honest my favorite would probably be wreck obviously found footage it wasn't the first to do it but 2007 was still quite Early on, been done to death now, right? But I remember when I was first watching it and it opens up with the show while you sleep at the fire station. Just like that opening and you, you genuinely feel like you're on board with them and you're going recording this TV programme. And then they have, it all just then starts falling apart uh, when the fire crew goes to the building. Everything about it, I just enjoyed it. Something it does brilliantly is that kind of... Uh that escalation starts small and then you know, you've got your sort of bodies falling over a banister you know you've got chase sequences up the stairs and then i reckon probably one of the single most tense finales i've ever seen with 
God knows what staggering around. Do you know what? That ending, that's probably my least favourite bit of the film. <laughs> I enjoyed it up to that point where I felt it decided to take a different direction. Not that I didn't like it, but it ended up being like those other movies we've seen where they end up in a dark space and something that definitely doesn't look fully human comes out of the corner of the room and drags them and then you got the, you know you got the camera angle where the face is there right in front mm. and then they just disappear from view as something whips them from bit i don't know that that bit just didn't do it for me did you guys see the wreck sequels i saw the second and i think it was the third with the wedding that's the one Aye. the second one i think if i remember correctly was um it was the same story but told from a different perspective quite enjoyed it third one not so much yeah i, f- I think the third one dropped the found footage aspect yeah you got found footage opener yeah you, you see some of it through the security cameras if i recall as well but so uh, with the second one i have seen that before it follows on a little bit as well after off the first. It does indeed because it becomes an exorcism film as it goes on. That's right, yeah. (laughs) Something I really liked about these movies is that for the first three, they completely reinvent the film each time. You've got your original one, then you've got the second one goes, hey, you can tell you what, you thought you were watching a zombie film? Ha! It's actually a demonic possession film. And the third one comes along. The third one uh, ditches the found footage quite cheekily at the beginning, you know, before someone stamps of a wedding camera. Then you've got a comedy film, essentially. A zombie yeah. comedy film. The fourth one, I wasn't big on the fourth one, which is it's a zombie film on a boat, essentially. It's perfectly serviceable. It just didn't really have anything that made you say, oh, I've never, never seen that before. You know, like with the third one where you've got your, you got your uh, sidekick who's dressed up as a giant sponge for most of it. The uh, bride is carrying about a chainsaw. And if people battling zombies in suits of armour and stuff like that. So there's some, there's some interesting shit about the third one. My zombie film, by the way, is Train to Busan. My all-time favourite zombie film. I haven't seen a zombie film that manages to pack in this much sheer emotion into the piece. The father-daughter relationship is very sweet all the way through it. As someone who's not really into zombie films all that much, I liked that it didn't try and... It wasn't trying to be the goriest zombie film. It wasn't trying to be the scariest zombie film. But I think it was a zombie film that had the most heart to it. And it's weird considering um, what it was a sequel to. Uh, Soul Station was quite an angry anti-establishment one. And then you've got this, which just seemed... It's got similar anti-establishment sentiments. Essentially, the film's all about uh, greed. South Korea becoming more capitalist. But fundamentally, it's also got the sort of father and daughter coming together as the film goes on, you know, him sort of learning to make sacrifices for her, you know, him learning not to be a greedy bastard and putting himself first all the time. And uh, just, I just thought, thought that, that central relationship made it so watchable. I quite enjoyed that film as well. I thought that was very well made. Uh, I know you, I've not seen the sequel. I know you have, as, uh, David. I, I don't think he was quite um, into that as much, were you? Or did he not have, not have the same appeal? No, it, it doesn't really land in a tone properly uh, in the sequel. I don't think there's as much to say in it either. Uh, Jim, are you a fan of Train to Be Sad? I'm that annoying guy who hasn't seen it. Everyone's telling me to watch it, which, you know, I should have done by this point, considering I love zombie films so much. So I will try and rectify that. I do tend to watch a lot of films with my wife, and despite the fact that she is a massive fan of The Walking Dead, she doesn't like horror, apparently, so... <laughs> Yeah, we don't tend to watch a lot of horror films together. <laughs> an example of a zombie film that you don't like, Jim? There was quite a lot to sift through on this one, I've got to say, because I remember 
at the height of DVD's popularity, there was probably one being released every week. But there is a special place in hell reserved for Resident Evil Retribution. Now, the series as a whole isn't particularly fantastic. I, I tend to look at them as two separate trilogies. The first three, for what they are, are fine. You know, I, I, I tend to enjoy them, but the other three are a separate thing. Almost Paul Anderson disappearing up himself, I'm, you know, I think. And... Um, the worst of those is Retribution, a film that starts with nothing and finishes with nothing, <laughs> and nothing happens along that journey as well. Uh, just, <laughs> I've seen it a few times because each time I've watched it, I've completely forgotten what happened. <laughs> that's how that's how good it is. Um, and I watched it just before the New Year, actually, and. Again, it's a lot of it is gone, but they're in some weird underground facility. Umbrella Corporation has some like odd testing areas, kind of like you know the old nuclear testing sites you'd see in, from the fifties, where it was like a little town, and they've got all props there and that sort of thing. But obviously, with this, it's zombies as they're testing and various other bioweapons. But it just felt like one big pointless exercise in nothing. Like nothing <laughs> productive happens for the film uh, on, its, on its own or for the series as a whole. It feels like it just goes nowhere and ends up nowhere. It shoe-ons in a few characters from the games, kills them off, and then it finishes. And you just think, well, that was a waste of everybody's time. <laughs> I'm with Jim. I think, you know, first Resident Evil, I quite enjoyed. Funnily enough, I enjoyed it up to the bit that where the zombies really, you know, came into their own. I like the build-up of it before they really came on the scene, which is strange for a zombie movie, but there we go. Second one, weren't that good. Third one, the desert one, I think it was, with Vegas, wasn't it, Jim? Yeah, yeah, that, that's yeah. where the series peaked for me. That was, that was a genuinely good film, if you ask me. Yeah, so that, that first, those first three were fine. And yeah, absolutely, after that. I mean, I remember one, it was all like super modern and it was like a lot of white in it and I don't really know what was going on, so I can't really tell you what happened. I, I think that was Afterlife, if I recall the subtitle correctly, and it is responsible for some of the worst action stunt wire work I have ever seen. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Many, many years ago, there was an animation. It's probably been a few, but I remember watching one and it started in an airport. That was Resident Evil, wasn't it? Yes. I think I actually picked that up at a car boot sale for about a pound, if I remember. Not a bad buy, though. <laughs> I was, that one was all right. I thought, yeah, the Resident Evil... There's probably a lot of B-movie zombie stuff that could possibly be weak. There's nothing actually coming to mind. It's more the... More the big action stuff, really. Yeah, I, I find a lot of the cheaper B-movies to at least be endearing in some way. They try something a bit different, either to cover up the budget restrictions or to, even if they're just trying something new. But a lot of them, even the rubbish ones, tend to at least leave an impression. But yeah, the, that Resident Evil film is just garbage. Yeah, and they've not got any excuse, have they, the, the big budget films? Like you just no, said, no. you know, the, the little films, you know, they're struggling, they've not got the money. And they do a lot of good stuff, and some of it, even just being creative, awards it points. Do you know what I mean? And having 
having the balls to go out there and, and try this stuff. And I quite like a lot of indie B movie films, but yeah, with the likes of the Resident Evils, the last two or three or whatever the heck it, I mean, there is no, <laughs> with budgets they're on, surely they could have found a writer. <laughs> I think the problem was, was they kept Paul Anderson as it, so there you go. <laughs> I mean, he made bloody um, Event Horizon. What happened after that? I mean, Event Horizon is amazing. And then, Don't forget Mortal Kombat. <laughs> <laughs> Event Horizon is really bloody good. I don't know whether this suggests that he's just been chasing the money since, or if maybe Event Horizon was like a happy accident. I mean, you, you get some directors who'll do uh, one great kind of film within their genre and then struggle afterwards, like the uh, guy who did Martyrs. You know, you go Martyrs is his second film, is an absolute masterpiece. You see the other horror films that he's done, uh, Incident at Ghostland, uh, The Tall Guy or Tall Man, and this one, The One Set of the Orphanage. You're looking at sort of various types of quite average movie, but you have this masterpiece that's just inserted through the list. With Paul W.S. Anderson, Mortal Kombat I would probably defend as well, but at the same time, um, Event Horizon is one that I go back to probably about once a year right now. Absolutely. It is such a great film. And then... Just going on to video games, I mean, I suppose Dead Space was inspired a lot by that. I know I can't play Dead Space. You know me with horror games. I just can't touch them to <laughs> fry me to death. Horror films all day long, not a problem. But as soon as I'm in a horror game, that's it. I just soil my pants. But moving on. <laughs> my, uh, my bad zombie film is House of the Dead, a very poor video game adaptation in which we have characters die, the game over screen comes up, you got, you got in-game footage starts being used during a movie, and it builds up to a moment where character says, you want to be immortal, why? The bad guy goes, so I can live forever. And that is the script that we're dealing with. It's also got lines like, this book looks old, it may help us. But funnily enough, it does help them. And the weirdest part of the movie is there's not even a fucking house in it. It's not like a, a mansion or anything. You know, you've got, like, there is a building. But, uh, you, you know, you could, if you said, like, the House of the Dead, and then you just sort of see this, you know, it's not like, like in the old video games where you'd be going through villages to get to this uh, huge mansion on a hill that's, like, the size of a small town or whatever, right? You know, and, and it just doesn't have that. You've got an island with a building on it. Not Not... It's got an underground tunnel. I suppose that's quite sizable. And um, just these absolutely shocking action scenes, you know, where it's all sort of bullet time stuff, but Dreamcast graphics coming flashing up every so often as a distraction. you got some very unfunny dialogue. And I think we all recut the film later where he started adding, like, fart sounds and stuff like that to try and make it into more of an overt comedy. Uh, I don't know how funny that new version of it was. I I, I think Ball's reputation precedes him, though. That's the thing. That's the reason I haven't watched it. And I think I've only watched one of his films by accident, and that was In the Name of the King, I think it was. Um, I think that was a Dungeon Siege film, because all of his films are video game-related, as far as I'm aware. I know he's done quite a few of them. He's done Far Cry, Postal... Uh, two House of the Dead films and Blood Rain off the top of my head. 
But yeah, House of the Dead is one I've just avoided because I knew how good it would be. And the fact that you mentioned it adds um, in-game graphics to it just sounds abysmal because the games look horrible as well. Like, they are fun to play and they're a blast, especially with the really bad B-movie acting that you got from games from that era. They're part of the reason you enjoy them so much, but to see that in a film just sounds absolutely horrendous. Uh, Uwe Ball has done one movie that was quite good and although it's got the same name as a video game it's not based on a video game that is Rampage the person who just who just goes off on a killing spree one day just surprisingly gritty very sort of small and intimate film and something that also looks like that happy accident I was mentioning earlier it makes me it makes me wonder <laughs> if he was simply uh, if he just didn't try with his other movies or if this was his I'll show my critics thing. You know, like how every so often Adam Sandler will release a good film. To remind you, by the way, I yeah, could yeah. do this if I wanted to. I just choose to make shite a lot of the time, you know? <laughs> oh, God. Uh, when, when was Rampage released then in relation to a lot of his other uh, stuff? Rampage was released in 2009. So, yeah, you would have had a few of... The- those under his belt already, including House of the Dead. I think that's from the mid two thousands, if I recall. Uh, I, ho- holy um, shit! I don't know if you know how just how many movies this guy seems to make. The year that he made Rampage, he also made two other movies uh, called Stoic and Darfur. He did uh, Blood Rain: The Third Reich shortly afterwards. That was the following year, and he's he'd done Alone in the Dark Part Two, Far Cry, and Tunnel Rats the year before. Let's move on to a different subgenre. So that was us talking zombies. Now, why do we talk about slasher films? Death. Have you got a favourite slasher? Oh, now there's a question. Well, growing up, I, you know, I definitely loved the Nightmare on Elm Street series um, and Scream as well. I think those two, those two pretty much uh, made up my childhood in a way. I mean, Halloween I enjoy as well. A, a favourite one. Do you know what? It's going to be a toss up between Freddy Krueger and Ghostface and I'm going to have to choose one. So I'm going to go Freddy Krueger. Come on, Pizza Face. I'm going with you. <laughs> With Elm Street, I think Elm, I thought Elm Street was brilliant. It's one of those advantages of growing up with an older brother. Was it meant that I saw a lot of the Elm Street films when I probably shouldn't? I just think they have the whole concept of him of don't fall asleep. You know, he gets you in your dreams. I mean, you know, seeing that as a kid and going to bed at night. Because you do, you watch these movies at late at night and it's in dark. And then you turn off the TV when it's finished and, you know... The entire room's in darkness and you go up to bed and the house is quiet and you start imagining shapes in the corner. But that's if it's a ghost. But if you go to sleep, this is where Freddy gets you. So you're doomed. But I still have a lot of love for Scream as well. But Freddy Krueger is just a different beast. And I know he turned into a bit of a laughing stock. And he is, it is corny in, in some ways, but I've still got a lot of love for it. So yeah, that's my that choice. a good pick. And as you said, the idea of, oh, you're no longer even even there. Safe and when you're asleep. It adds that extra dimension that I think the slasher films need at that point. Jeff, what about yourself? Have you got a favourite slasher film? I've got to stay in the same road. There's nothing better than A Nightmare on Elm Street. It's just, as, as you've already touched on, everything about it is iconic. The way it's, you know, nothing's safe. Even if you're just a little bit tired, you can appear. But going deeper into that, I think one of the great things about it is just... 
how original they tried to make Freddy's kills as the series went on. I did go through a phase of, I want to say being obsessed with it, but uh, having the box set with all of them, including New Nightmare, I would watch it almost on repeat, and it just fascinated me as much as anything. I mean, once once you've seen the first one, and probably New Nightmare as well, they're, they're not scary. Uh, they're, they're more fun films to you know to sit back and enjoy. I found the second one quite intriguing. That was a different concept with him manifesting inside the main character rather than him being this school that haunts their dreams. It, it was quite interesting, but it kind of ran out of steam after a little while. But um, I think it was New Nightmare, which was the first one I saw, and as Steph mentioned, when, when you're a kid and you see that and you, you don't want to go to sleep, do you? It, it, it scares you awake, basically. <laughs> it's um, just so different and mind-blowing to see that at a young age. And, you know, we probably shouldn't have done But then again, we were probably all watching these when we shouldn't. What's your favourite kill in the Elm Street films? One that jumps out most to me is that puppet one in part three, you know, where he's uh, making those strings out of the kid's blood vein. Absolutely, yeah. That one is a memorable one. Yeah, but part three does have some really, really good ones in there. But for some reason, uh, I can't remember. I think it was part five. It was the kid with the hearing aid. For some reason, that always stuck with me where he turned it right up and spoke into it and it blew his head off. <laughs> um, I, 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 even at the time, I found it kind of problematic. You know, is, is this ableist? What, what's going on? But, you know, it, it's something that always always struck a chord with me for some reason. With um, the remake, something that, that struck me as a missed opportunity because I sort of thought, well, when you've got, by that point, good CGI, it unlocks a lot of opportunities to really capture what a dream looks like. And you just didn't yeah. have that. Like, the thing that I thought was quite interesting about the remake was the way that it implied that Freddy may have been innocent halfway through the film. And I thought, oh, that's quite cool. That's an interesting twist on it. Five minutes later, they course correct and go, nah, he actually was really, <laughs> really guilty. I thought the remake was fine. It wasn't terrible by any means. It was it was a perfectly serviceable film. It's it's there was nothing wrong with it, but it, it's it's a remake of one of the most iconic horror films ever made. You've at least got to do something different with it. I think the most they did was looking into like that micro sleeps, micro napping, whatever they called it, and the the dreamscapes there were basically just the second rate industrial Silent Hill. It wasn't anything particularly dreamy. Uh, Steph, have you got a favourite kill? The one you mentioned, that one is memorable. Not so much a favourite kill, but it's 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 um, Heather oh god, what's her name in the movie now? Heather Langenkamp. For what's her name in the film? Nancy, yeah, yeah. Nancy, um, sorry. Nancy. When Nancy's friend <laughs> appears in that bag and then gets dragged on the corridor. I mean, that's like, oh shit. Yes, I mean, so that's, that's not even... Good. You know, a death scene, it's just that on its own, that is what sticks in my mind and freaks me out every time I watch it, even though, you know what I mean? Yeah, that, that, that's a good jump scare moment as well, I find. It's one of the few moments that still makes me jump. Just that bit, it, it's, it just comes quite unexpected, doesn't it? I actually saw it in a cinema oh, wow. about a year ago, seeing that right up 
in your face like that. Oh, Christ. I think it's quite an inventive series, the full, you know, all the films, you know, they have to come up with new ideas. Like you said, Jim, for try and come up with more inventive kills. I mean, I suppose... With the Elm Street films, we said earlier that Freddy, as it went on, became a bit too much of a cartoon character. In fact, he literally does, in part five, the Super Freddy part. <laughs> yeah. With the first film, a large part of the appeal of it's this sort of mystery of what's what's going on at the beginning, you know. And um, the problem is, you can only you can only really explore the concept fully once. You know, you can only have that sort of moment of ah oh, shit, it's in our dreams once without repeating yourself. And so you go to, well, what's the thing that we carry across? What's the thing we develop? We'll do this with the uh, dream scenes. I guess it's a bit like with uh, the Jurassic Park films where, you know, if you're going to have your conversation about the ethics of cloning dinosaurs, then you do that in part one. And after that, yeah, the dinosaurs become the main attraction, which is in a way quite ironic since the recurring idea in the, in the movies is did he bring back dinosaurs with Saw I guess you have this where you go well you can only do the who's Jigsaw reveal like that once you know what's Jigsaw's motivation you can do once so when you go well, what can we bring back we'll bring back the traps I think with Freddy it maybe became like we went well he's our main character you know he's a big draw We'll make him riff on Jaws, or uh, when he does that uh, Iron Butterfly song in the Garden of Eden. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and plays Nintendo, and I don't know, a celebrity cameo from Alice Cooper. Like, it just lost something for me. That is a tune, though. Come on. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> uh, my pick, by the way, for, I don't know if it's my favourite, but it's the one I'm going to bring in today, is Friday the 13th Part 4, the uh, embarrassingly named final chapter. With Friday the 13 films, the first four of them are closer in tone to maybe to like maybe the sort of earlier slashers like the likes of Halloween or something like that, you know, where you do still have them being quite scary. But four is where you're seeing a bit of a transition. Like with four, you also have the perfect combination between a scary film and a cheesy film. You know, you've got the horniest bunch of characters in it and uh, so much sort of gratuitous uh, gratuitous nudity, gratuitous violence. It's like basically amalgamation of all the things a slasher film should be. Like Jason wasn't yet too stupid. We weren't going to total sleaze like with part five and we weren't going into the kind of goofy zombie Jason era for uh, six, six onwards. But at the same time, we still had a lot more fun with it than we do in parts one, two and three. Friday the 13th is a decent series overall, but it didn't really hold my interest up until about part six which when it started getting more postmodern and silly, as you say, with the uh, more supernatural side of things. What stood out for me was Tommy Jarvis's character, because he pretty much stole the show. And that's probably because it kind of encapsulated the 80s brat, really, didn't it? With the later ones, I had a bit of a soft spot for parts 8 and 10, with uh, Jason Takes Manhattan, where sadly the cast member... Peter Mark Richmond uh, just died at the age of 93 very recently. He played the stubborn uh, teacher of that. Mm. And uh, with Jason X, apparently there was a bit of an issue on set. The director was trying to make something that was darker. He was trying to make a film that more resembled Alien. And the producer, uh, I believe the Sean S. Cunningham, did not want to make a film that resembled Alien. He wanted to make it, make it camper. He wanted to make it sillier. 
and we end up with this kind of awkward halfway point. But it does have a series all-time best kill, the uh, liquid nitrogen kill. And uh, we've also got that phenomenal bit where you've got the uh, recreation of Camp Crystal Lake with the simulator, and then the two girls uh, trying to distract Jason, you know... uh, Let's, let, let's have a beer, let's smoke some weed and have premarital sex. We love premarital sex. <laughs> what about a bad slasher film, folks? Is there, have you guys got got least favourite slasher films? Oh, whilst we're on the subject, I'm going to have to say Friday the 13th Part 3. Oh! I just could not get into that. And to be honest, it took me three attempts to watch it without falling asleep. <laughs> Sorry if that's a critique or anything. Um, I mean... I was actually quite looking forward to that one when I first read about it because it's the one where he gets his icon, iconic image from. He picks up the hockey mask and, you know, the rest is history. But even by this point, it had become stale. And obviously, he had the gimmicks of things popping to the front of the screen. But I just found it a chore to see it through. There's nothing inspiring about it whatsoever. Even the kills I found somewhat bland but I, I guess you know I'm, I'm watching this from uh, probably 10 years ago when I first saw it maybe a bit longer but I would have seen many many other films of this sort since before then I, I guess had I seen it earlier than that maybe it would be different but I just found it so laborious to sit through How about yourself Steph? I mean I couldn't think of any off the top of my head but now it, now it comes to it. Um, I got Jason X on VHS. <laughs> Watched it once. Oh, dear Lord. Yes, that, probably that. I can't really think of anything that stands out as being terribly bad, to be honest. I think I'm one of those who... Something has to be really bad for me to not like it or even remember it, to be honest. Because I think we... We watched that much that like, new stuff pushes old stuff out of your head anyway, but <laughs> Jason X. I know that was always one videotape that I opened my uh, cupboard door to where I stopped my tapes and I'd be like, oh God, I just need to get rid of that. I just don't even want to see the front cover. Me and my friends when I was growing up, we used to watch a lot of those sort of straight DVD ones. I remember particularly one called Halloween Camp 2, Trevor versus Jason. <laughs> <laughs> So Trevor looked a little bit like Michael Myers, except like he was wearing uh, he's wearing dungarees rather than a boiler suit. And uh, I'm pretty convinced they changed the name of the film later, which presumably would be imagining some like parent or a grandparent trying to buy uh, a present and going, oh, what was it? Someone versus Jason, and then picking that up off the shelf, and that's probably how the sales happened because. <laughs> There's very little versing in it. Jason, if I remember this correctly, the only person who could be Jason is a ghost that shows up at the end. Um, It's one of the character's uh, dead brothers. And he just comes along wearing a white shirt, gestures towards Trevor, and then just leaves. Thinking about bringing that one up. But if we're talking about big franchises, um, I hate Halloween 6. There's just something about the, uh, the supernatural cult of foreign angle that we're trying to bring into it that just didn't really work for me. It left its source material behind far too much to go in what I felt was a very unrewarding direction, you know. Um, 
you got some people say Myers is most scary when you know nothing about him. And the thing is, that doesn't go for most slashers. You know, you want a motivation for your slashers a lot of the time. You want a mo- you want your baddies to be rounded individuals. With Myers, I think part of it worked was because we don't know, was he a normal kid who snapped or was he always just a bad kid, right? But then we go, no, no, he's actually controlled by some druids, right? And they're, they're fulfilling this uh, curse of Myers must kill off all of his remaining family members and stuff. And it was just a sort of hot mess of, uh, of plot points that have been kind of developed in the fifth one. The ninth Friday the 13th will probably be up there as well. You know, Jason goes to hell. Um, so sorry to Adam Marcus if you're listening to this. I applaud that he was trying to do something very different with that film. You know, Jason jumping body to body. At the same time, his rationale that he wanted the audience to miss Jason is a non-starter. Of course the audience missed Jason. That's why we're watching the film to begin with, right? And the lore they bring in, like, like Voorhees must die at the hands of Voorhees. His uh, sister, who we hadn't mentioned, was silly. The enchanted knife that can kill him was silly. Uh, it's funny you should mention the Halloween uh, series, actually. I haven't seen the one you mentioned, but uh, Resurrection, that was a terrible one. And... Uh, it's that, but I think my memory must have repressed it because maybe that should go in place of Friday the 13th Part 3. It was that bad. I'm not saying that it was responsible, but I had stomach cramps the same night, so the two could be related. But, yeah, that's that's all my memory of Halloween Resurrection is that I had a really bad stomach afterwards. There was something really sad about watching Meyer's reign of terror come to an end after being kicked by Buster Rhymes saying, trick or treat, motherfucker. <laughs> you know, it's, uh, I don't imagine John Carpenter would have wanted that. Uh, what about moving on to supernatural horror films? So anything that's based around Ooh. ghosts or hauntings, that sort of malarkey. <laughs> do, you, do you have one of mine there, Steph? The others, probably. I enjoyed The Orphanage, that Spanish one from a few years back. I mean, The Others, though, that, that is a work of genius, I feel. I'm going to pass this over to Jim while I have another think about this because I know he's done his homework and I haven't. So <laughs> Yeah, the, the others is a very good shout and was almost my choice. I mean, that's such a haunting film and when it gets to the end, you're just stunned. But with me, it's, it's going to be the one film that's genuinely scared me as an adult. Uh, it's Annabelle Creation. Probably not the top of many people's lists, but I remember seeing that in the cinema and the hairs on my neck were stood on end for the, the good majority of that film. It, it starts off quite sad. I mean, just involve kids in anything that's going to bring them harm and that. I, I just don't like it whatsoever. But obviously the, the scares in this film just build up the tension so much. It winds it tighter and tighter before it springs and the amount of times I could have jumped out of my skin. A few moments spring to mind, such as when one of the kids is on the bunk beds and they hear footsteps and it plays on it and plays on it and plays on it. You know there's something under the bed and you look down one side, there's nothing there. You look down the other side, there's nothing there. So we look down the other side again. It's just get on with it. Stop doing that to me. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, um, 
there's many moments like that. And there's a bit where the kid that's in the wheelchair gets locked in a shed and she's trying to find her way out and she's crawling around and the malevolent spirit gets hold of her and just throws up this black mank into her mouth. And I was just, even talking about it now, he's getting me going. That's how much this film scared me. <laughs> I mean, like, the first, at all, like this one, because I've been seeing the first one and then going into this one. I only went to watch this because I could. Yeah, you've got a Cine World Pass. Yeah, um, Odeon Limitless, which is gathering dust, unfortunately, at the moment. But, yeah, um, it's one of them where it genuinely terrified me and you knew it was scaring the other people there as well to the point where there was a few like lads out with their girlfriends trying to show off and that. So the bits where you can tell they are genuinely shitting themselves as well. They're trying to make jokes about it, but they're visi- visibly scared. And, you know, you, people are actually jumping in, in the cinema screen and there are actual screams. It was just, it was an experience. I think that was a really good film as well. Out of the Conjuring Universe ones, it's either the best or the second best of the Conjuring Part 2 being the other one that I thought was really good. As far as my favourite supernatural one goes, I'm going to go with the American remake of The Ring, which is better than the Japanese one. Saw this first, so that's maybe so maybe there's a bit of bias here, but for me, the Japanese one has got a really interesting story. However, the idea of the uh, girl having telekinesis and um, the backing story they have for her, I found less impactful than, you know, the girl uh, being uh, left up in the barn with just a TV set for yonks because all the animals around her kept on dying. And uh, I just find that backing story really interesting. I thought the video in the American one was terrifying. Like, when I saw it the first time, I'd have been... 16 when the film came out and um, the bit at the end where she comes out the TV, spoilers for a very old film, was legitimately at the time one of the scariest things I had ever bloody well seen because what, what the American one does really well, the Japanese one doesn't really, is we have a template for what a US horror film looks like, so when they find the body in the well, you can almost believe that's the end of the film right? And then you've got that bit where the uh, scary-looking kid says, you weren't supposed to help her. That's a shiver up the spine moment. You go, oh, no. You know, the audience are suddenly put into a helpless position. Ghost stories, I think they're probably one of my favourite genres, just because it's just you just open to so many interpretations of how you display that on the screen, um, whether you just do, like, poltergeist-type activity on it. Um, I quite like the, the Conjuring type movies i think they're quite entertaining i've seen the first annabelle i don't think i've seen creation from the way you were describing that then jim i don't think i've seen that i know one we both love though jim ghost shark baby (laughs) (laughs) now how how did i miss that off my list come on i know i can't believe it so ghost shark (laughs) <laughs> just, just when you thought it was safe to wash the car. So basically, a ghost shark can appear and eat you anywhere where there's water. That is the genius of ghost shark. I mean, I've not seen a second one, so I'm assuming it follows the same thread of 
ghost shack pops up wherever they <laughs> Ghost shack 2 actually takes it onto a more physical level. The water does not have to be a liquid. It can be frozen or gas. That is how good Ghost Shark 2 is. Okay, Ghost Shark can uh, make the tap and stuff. Yeah. Because <laughs> that, that's actually not a terrible concept. Because the thing is, you got to drink water, right? Um, <laughs> well, it's funny you should say that. There, there is, like, I don't mean to spoil it, but, you know, again, it's an old film now, I guess. But there is a scene where I think it's a policeman that does have a cup of water, and then all of a sudden he splits in half. <laughs> As the ghost shark comes out, <laughs> comes straight through and it's inspired stuff. The, the second one really isn't as good. It's really, really cheap and looks like it's the, the ghost shark itself has been rendered on a PlayStation 1. Oh dear. But like the first one, spoiler alert, there's um, a bikini car wash. <laughs> <laughs> Although there's one in the hallway as well, I remember. I'm pretty sure there's one in the hallway and it just appears and goes yeah, horizontal across the screen. Because someone's oh, mopping Christ. the floor, I think. Yeah. <laughs> and there's a kids on a slip and slide, a plumber fixing some pipes, so all sorts of different ways a ghost shark can get you. <laughs> <laughs> David's there now ordering it, off, ordering it off Amazon. I know what's happening. You're missing out. I think this thing's quite fun. Um, so what, what's a particularly bad supernatural oh. horror? My nomination for this, just the first that came to mind, and I'm probably being unfair because it's not that bad, is Blair Witch Project 2. Blair Witch Project 2 had a good idea at its core. The uh, basic premise of it, of, all right, now we're going to ditch a found footage format to have uh, people going into the woods inspired with a movie. There's something to that. I think a problem with the movie comes from the very broad sorts of characterization that it had for it, where like, all right, well, here's your goth, here's your academics, and uh, here's your witch, etc., where the characters were basically defined by one trait each. And whenever they need to advance the plot, the goth character would just go like, oh, I just know the tapes are there, or like, oh, I just know that that's what happened to her. And um, it kind of pissed me off when I saw an interview with him recently about why the film has a bad reputation. And uh, the director, Joe Berlinger, was saying, I maybe should have stuck more to the tropes of the series. And you go, no, I don't think the fans wanted the same film again. But I, but I don't think the fans wanted a film that felt like it was sneering at them as well. And I also don't think that the fans wanted a film that was, was kind of going down this, uh, this sort of meta-commentary angle on, the, on how irresponsible the first film was whilst also taking the unusual format of a sequel, right? Um, so I wasn't a fan of the message of the film. I wasn't a fan of the characterization of the film. And I didn't like the way that it consistently interjected scenes from the finale throughout the rest of the movie. It was almost like um, being used as breadcrumbs to say, look, you will get something, we promise, stick with it. If that was something the studio insisted on adding, and it's something that I think showed a lack of confidence in their product. I've not actually seen the Blair Witch sequel. Me neither. Um, just, just because it got so, you know, derided by critics and everyone who had known had seen it, and much like The Ring during its height, it's one of them that became very parodied in 
pop culture. You'd see it on TV shows all the time, and you just got fed up of it. That's probably fair with it. I mean, with Blair Witch, it wasn't the first found footage film. You could look at Campbell Holocaust for that one. And even of its era, it came out after uh, the last broadcast. At the same time, you know, it's a, it established a lot of the cinematic language. Steph, have you seen a particularly bad ghost film yet? Oh! I Ghost Shark can't possibly be it. It's, I would say, I don't like the Insidious films. I know a lot of people said, oh, you know, they go into cinema and there's that demon behind him and it terrified him. And I, I just, <laughs> I don't think I've been watching the same movie. The first film, the first half of the first film, I thought was solid. Where you've got, like, your face in the window... You got like the little kid in the corner as as the camera is panning through the house, and you got these really big loud organs, which just go off every time something happens. Like it was, it was quite powerful viewing, and um, you know it sort of shows James Wan's versatility in a sense. He could make the Insidious films as well as directing the rival series with the Country. I reckon, like, with, with Insidious, the, you can pinpoint the exact moment the film turns shit, and that's the second that Lynn Chase's character says the phrase astral projection. At that point, you go, oh, no, this is going to become, like, a bad version of Poltergeist, isn't it? And that's basically the direction it goes in. I don't think the Never region, or uh, Never world? That's a bit, that's a bit south of the border. <laughs> Going down to the Never region, that, that might have been a bit of movie I've been watching, pal. <laughs> yeah, whatever it's called. <laughs> never is going, whatever it's called. I just didn't think it was very well characterised. Anyway, let's move on to our last, uh, our last category here, which is found footage film. My favourite found footage film, and the reason that I write for horror cult films was because I wanted to share this found footage film, is a little known movie called The Big Finish, which is all about a pair of people in uh, college in England, and uh, they're looking to do a few pranks, and then they'd leave to go on off and become filmmakers, is their big plan, right? That'll be the eponymous finish. What they do is like fairly mild or juvenile pranks that gradually escalate. It's like an episode of Beatles About that goes horribly wrong halfway through. And when you get the moment of transition where it goes from just being like a, you know, a film by a pair of a pair of idiots who are you know fairly harmless idiots but to, the, to the moment where it turns violent. It's just masterfully handled. And uh, the way that, like, once the two characters are in it far too deep, they're still performing to the camera, they're still doing all of their faces, they're still doing all of their gags and things. There's just something really tragic about the, about it, you know? Have either, either of you guys seen this film, by the way? No, is it pretty low budget? Yeah, the, the budget for it would probably have been in the low thousands. The film was all improvised as well. It adds this sort of Kirby enthusiasm approach of, you know, we got a very rough through line, but we're just sh- but we're shooting it in sequence and we're improvising it as well the entire time. And, uh, you know, it's got this this sort of very organic energy about it. 21 years later now, it's never really found its, uh, its audience, although it currently, no, it's not, it's currently available on Prime. Um, it's not it's not available for free on Prime, 
but it is currently available on Prime, so you know. Well, that's good. Or a movie. It sounds good, though. That the fact that they've improvised it because that's that's a hard thing to do in terms of making sure you're keeping in character. They must have assumed the roles quite well. Oh, take a look at that. I remember when you first came <laughs> on board with um with the big finish. All right. What about, what about you guys? Favorite found footage films. Blue Witch is a, a belter. I think you know if you actually watch it properly and use your imagination. I think it's terrifying. I know some people think it's crap. Uh, I just think they haven't got imagination. So I just, I just uh, go over there. You're not included in my conversation. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> but uh, no, I think if you can use your imagination, a lot of things you know can be scary and. And you have to watch it carefully from the beginning and just pick up on all the points. Um, Rec, we've already mentioned, but I'm going to choose Troll Hunter. Mmm, Troll Hunter is superb. I think the CGI in that is absolutely amazing, and it is genuinely terrifying by the time you get to the, you know, the final scenes. I mean, initially when the young cast meet the troll hunter and they get to hang out with him and they, they sort of realise what goes into hunting trolls and to protect themselves and what they shouldn't have and how they should smell and uh, <laughs> things like that um i just think it's a really nice piece of filmmaking and i genuinely believed in everything that was happening in the film and the, the trolls just looked so menacing at times suddenly quite cute to be honest but um phenomenal locations in it as well yeah great cgi great locations Really funny at points too. Absolutely, it, it wasn't. I, I, I don't want to really say it was a horror film. Of it had horror elements, but it is more of a monster movie, I suppose, than anything else. What about you, Jimbo? You got yourself uh, found footage that really speaks to you. I'm I'm gonna be that guy and say I'm not a big fan of the genre myself. Uh, that's not to say there aren't some good ones, but it's it's one I tend to avoid <laughs> if I can. But um, I would say, you know, we've already touched on it, Wreck is a, a classic, really. Um, and I don't think there's been anything better than that. Ross would probably kill us if I didn't mention Hell House LLC. That, that's, a, that's a good film. That was pretty creepy. I think they have to be careful when they're making found footage movies because they can exclude quite a lot of people. I know I'm really bad at motion sickness, but fortunately, a lot of them I've watched are fine. I mean, there's one I really enjoyed and... I suppose it's classed as a found footage movie. The Conspiracy. I don't oh, know if any of yes. you guys have seen yes. this. The Tarsus Club thing. And that was great, but there is a, probably in during the middle of that, I had to go and have a lie down in between because I wanted to throw up just because of the camera. But the worst one for that is actually irreversible. I can't sit through that movie. Just the beginning bit makes one shock. But um, just going back to the found footage, I think if it, as long as it's not done crazily like there is quite a lot of good movies and a lot of you know indie movies as well that employ that technique and i suppose it's good that it's a cheaper a cheaper way of shooting but by saying it's a phone footage they can get away with the fact they've not got the proper equipment or maybe like you know the, the dollars and stuff like that which has just reminded me the borderlands oh yes yes, yes that's yes. a good one yes <laughs> because it's obviously with it not being as because um, they've got the cameras attached to the head, aren't they? So that's a bit different. As in, 
it didn't it didn't come quite to mind when I first when we were just first discussing this, but yeah, absolutely with Borderlands. Yeah, I guess with that is a belter. With a lot of found footage, you just think of shaky cameras and a lot of running around. But yeah, the Borderlands there's a lot of fixed perspective, isn't there? Because they've set up security cameras in the church and they've got their head cams. Yeah. And and that ending, oh, that was so creepy. <laughs> <laughs> that was probably. That still remains probably one of my favourite films that what was released. Yeah, incredible. And like I say, you use your imagine- imagination and you get involved with it more and it's just, that is, yeah, cre- absolutely creepy. We've had... And British made as well. We've had some really good ones recently with found footage. Like in the last year we had um, Death of the Vlogger was found footage. Fantastic film. Host was found footage. Um, that was yes. also a really good film. And you know what? I even I even really quite liked Unfriended Dark Web. Some nice sort of uh, text focused found footages there. You know, ones are like all three of those are about using the internet essentially. Oh, and also there's some really nice, very low budget ones like Exhibit A. Uh, I don't know if anyone else has caught it, but it's uh, it was made round about the time of a recession. It's a kind of a recession horror about uh, a dad who's uh, who's who's lost who's lost his job, but has to try and keep an upbeat nature in front of his uh, family. Uh, very sad and uh, like it's grim to watch. And it goes to some really dark places by the end. I'd strongly recommend that one. The worst fine footage film that I've ever seen, and actually very probably the worst film I've ever reviewed for horror cult films, and very probably one of the worst films I've ever watched, is The Human Zoo. Uh, the Human Zoo is about a, rea- a reality show. People think they're going on to a reality show, and uh, what it's going to be is like a prison simulator. You know, they're going to be putting them in the room by themselves and see how long it takes to break them. The first 20 minutes is not good. You can tell that this is a TV studio of someone's living room. You know, you've got a few very bare prisons, a very unlikable cast to go into these prisons, and that's in the first 20, 25 minutes. The next hour and a half is just shots of different people in different prison rooms doing things. (laughs) The exercise... They cry, they take a shit at one point, and uh, they punch a wall in frustration. Some sometimes they meditate, but that's it. Like the film doesn't genuinely, the film doesn't have an ending. It just stops at one point. The director presumably got bored. And <laughs> Nothing you couldn't have seen if you'd gone out on the high street on a Saturday night. Then really, uh, it was uh, <laughs> it was also quite a depressing film to be watching during quarantine as well. So maybe maybe that made the whole thing worse, but. <laughs> Um, like I'd never seen such an anti-film as that. There's no arcs to it. There's no third act. But the spoiler here: the characters don't get out of the prisons. We're just there, and that's and they're still there when the film ends. They're still crying, punching the wall, shitting in the corner. Like some people might like it because it's experimental. They might say, "Oh, it's uh, grueling." You know, the same way that you could say something like, uh, "Like Salo is a grueling watch." Oh God, don't talk about that film. (laughs) (laughs) Honest to God, never in my life have I ever been put off food (laughs) after watching that movie. Uh, I felt physically sick and I didn't even want to eat. And then all of it, all of it, pal, all of it, just nasty, nasty movie. I don't ever want to hear that mentioned ever again. (laughs) It gives me, just, just the word, just... Yeah, no, th- uh, um, I've I've never seen it, but it's one of them where you read about it and you think, 
I, I don't need to watch it. Yeah, I'm alright. <laughs> the thing is, what it does well, um, which a human zoo doesn't, is like they're both very unpleasant. But one of them, I think, is like one of one of them's a bit of an endurance test, and the other is just boring. That's the difference. You know, one, <laughs> one you know one one of them uh, really gets to you. Like Salo, I think, is a very upsetting watch. Human Zoo is is just a tedious watch. You know, you go on, you're like, all right, well, there's no you know there's no character journey going on here. There's maybe I suppose, I suppose what you could argue is maybe the film's trying to do a sort of satire on. <laughs> reality TV, who would watch that, eh, guys? And you go, well, if that's your angle for it, the film should be more overtly satirical. And also, surely there's a bit of ironic form underlines meaning to a movie that's boring to watch for 90 minutes to make a point that reality TV is boring to watch. <laughs> I mean, it's called Human Zoo, isn't it? So I suppose it's not really showing the a human zoo. As in, like, you know, what it's like for animals locked up in a zoo that, you know, we pay to go in and just watch and they're stuck in a little box and, you know, they're not living a free life and the thing is just purely for entertainment. So I suppose that is what reality TV is, isn't it, with these Big Brother and things like the that? Thing, the thing of Avril is that the, uh, all the people in it are there, are there by their own volition, like they're all there to make money. Um, like right. all the characters at the start are greedy bastards who are like, ah, I'll be famous for 15 minutes. Um, so you kind of lose that angle um, of, oh, it's a bit like, you know, catching animals and leaving them in captivity or whatever. It's like, if that was the intention, the reality TV part works against that. Like, you could just do that as people get captured and are left in rooms and being filmed. I don't think it would necessarily be a better film, but I, but I think it would probably be, um, it, it, would, it would suit the metaphor more. Yeah. It sounds abysmal anyway. <laughs> Uh, that was so yeah, worst film I've ever reviewed for horror cult films. Oh, but uh, you guys got an absolute least favourite fine footage. I have got to say Cloverfield. Um, I know it kind of reignited the found footage genre, didn't it? Um, and it was quite massive at the time. But I was just absolutely underwhelmed by it, and I I switched off halfway through. I just it just didn't hold my interest whatsoever. I, there was one or two good bits, don't get me wrong, but overall it was just a horrendously dull film. I really like the second one, Ten Cloverfield Lane. Yeah, that, 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 that's a good one. <laughs> that's the one with um, Mary Elizabeth Winstead, isn't it? Uh, aye, and John Goodman, I believe, is the, ca- is, yeah, is the yeah. captor. That was quality. I didn't see the third end. Uh, Steph, have you got a least, fa- least favourite found footage? A least favourite found footage? Oh... Or just a shit one that, that comes to mind. <laughs> I can't really think of one that that. I mean, there has been a few like B movie ones. But I can't really think of any off the top of my head, to be honest. I I just think, as you think, there's more and more film footage movies that we completely forgot. I mean, Jerusalem was a good one. That was film footage, yeah. wasn't it? From memory. And Chronic. I mean, it's Chronicle. Is would Chronicle have been a film footage? Jerusalem. That, this brings in an awkward technicality because I spoke to the directors about this and they did not like when I used the term found footage. They're like, this isn't found footage. So they know, they're like, no, no, because it's all done through a set of augmented glasses, right? You're like, okay, but... <laughs> <laughs> what? 
<laughs> but but the cat but it's still a first person film with a shaky camera. Like I mean for all intents and purposes, you know, it's a bit like people saying, No, twenty days later is not a zombie film. It's a rage virus, right? You go, okay, but it, for, it, it still uh, yeah. looks like a zombie film, you know? I mean, I suppose as well, If does the footage need to be found for it to be a found footage film? I suppose it's got to be findable, I guess, but I mean, like, if it, play, it plays fast and loose with that, you know, I mean, Apollo 18, where the rocket ship blows up at the end, you know, how the fuck does anyone find the footage for that, yeah. right? I suppose <laughs> as long as it could be recorded, which it could be, I believe, with the augmented glasses in that movie, so, you know, it's, it's, it's a fine footage film. <laughs> Yeah, no, I can't really think of any off the top of my head. I quite enjoy film footage movies, um, but no. I'm going to pass on that one because there's none that really sticks out in my mind as being terrible. That's probably the better genre for me, to be honest. Um, let's finish off by just simply stating a movie that we really like that has not come up so far. Jim, if you want to get us started, a movie that you're a big fan of. I've got to say Midsummer. That film absolutely knocked me socks off. Uh, I've never really seen too many folk horrors prior to that. Obviously, I've seen The Wicked Man. You know, a couple of here and there that's probably been on the TV. But it was just something else. And the fact that you've got such a strong cast and a really intriguing story, like everything Florence Pugh's character is going through, you're going through with her at the very same time. It's all new to you as well. And it's the way it unfolds is so gut-wrenching and fascinating. Um, I've watched it a couple of times since, and every time you just pick up on something new and either equally horrific or just really, really interesting to it. And it's one of few films that have stuck with me for as long as it has uh, weeks and weeks after I'd seen it, it still was right in there, just manifesting. <laughs> um, I, I, I've, yeah, there's very few films that have had an impact on me like Midsummer has. In terms of its presentation, it was one of the most impressive movies of recent years. It makes me think, you know, if this is Ari Aster's second film, you know, this guy's got a long fucking career ahead of him, you know? And I hope he yeah, continues yeah. to make horror films. Apparently, I believe his next one's going to be over four hours long and and quite surreal. Wow. So, you know, yeah. Well, <laughs> sure. if it's good enough for the Justice League. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, I think I'd rather watch an Ari Aster film rather than a, a, a comic book. I'm just not into the big superhero type stuff. Hereditary, I didn't, I didn't take to really, but Midsummer, yeah. I think the fact it was all shot in the daytime as well. And you know what scenes I'm on about people. Those, and you just watch it on screen, you're like, no, <laughs> no, oh, Jesus. <laughs> and you're like, am I watching this? Even... I, I tell people about it, and they're like, they're wincing, and, and <laughs> they begin visually upset in front of me, and they've not even seen it, and they're like, I don't want to see it, I don't want to see this. But it's one of those... It's even more fun when you're watching it with your family. <laughs> oh, jeez. <laughs> You kind of, yeah, you glue to the screen, aren't you? Like, no, surely not. But then you can't move. I've said this before when people go, oh, I hate horror films, and they sit on the sofa at the side of you watching it because I think that's the power of horror. You just have to sometimes watch. With Midsummer, I think the director's cut version of it, like seeing the extra footage, that really helped, helped me appreciate it. I thought, 
a lot of the stuff they got rid of was very good material. I think it gave a lot more background and context to the cult. And you see, you've got that, we've got a whole other ritual by the river in it, which we got rid of. And I thought that was a real shame. I mean, don't get me wrong, you know, it's great that it's on there as the extended cut. And the, Ari Asher was already releasing a two and a half hour version of the movie. So I can understand why the cuts were made for the, for the cinematic version. But it was all good material. Anyone who currently thinks it's a, it's a three star film, you might well think it's a four-star film by the time you've watched the director's cut edition. Anyone who thinks it's a four-star film may well think it's a five-star. Yeah, I need to see the director's cut. I've not seen it, but I know you and uh, Doc have really rated it, so I think I need to see that. Uh, Steph, have you got a, a, a horror film you want to briefly rave about? Yeah, an oldie. Uh, the Ninth Gate by Ron Polanski. Oh, shit, yes. Um, which was an adaptation of The Dumas Club uh, I'll do Mass Club if you want to be proper speaking like. Now I read the book and it bangs on about the Three Musketeers. How the writer for The Ninth Gate managed to sort of pull a decent movie out of that book is anyone's guess, but it is amazing, the film, not the book. <laughs> Although you might want to get hold of the book just because the engravings are in that and it's a nice little touch. But yeah, they sort of stripped out all the Three Musketeers stuff, which is isn't just just isn't necessary and and so a lot of the plot is still there from the book and they've just expanded on it a bit i just think it's just a brilliant film it's just so menacing but then again i do like polanski's films i think they have just this unspeakable menace about them simmering beneath and just the ninth gate is just a beautiful film you know johnny depp puts in a great performance as dean corso who's willing to trample on anybody and rip people off to get hold of box that he wants i think it's just a film as well that doesn't get really talked about much from horror sites it just never gets mentioned but it does it is worth a mention because it's it's probably my second favorite film of all time so there you go <laughs> oh what's first uh wicker man i'd probably say it's wicker man ninth gate brave arts in the fear and love in las vegas Bram Stoker's Dracula, even if it does have a bad Keanu Reeves English accent in it, I still love him. I absolutely adore Wicker Man. Um, well, I remember going to the going to the cinema and uh, here in Aberdeen, where the director uh, Robin Hardy was doing a kind of tour of the film. He was taking it to different uh, cinemas around the UK and kind of doing a Q and A and stuff like that afterwards. And whilst they, he was doing this to promote the Wicker Tree. Sorry. Now, while The Wicker Tree wasn't a particularly good film, it was great, like, that this is a guy in his 80s who was still just touring it, right? And most of the questions were, were about The Wicker Man, you know, which uh, I think probably got him a wee bit. At the same time, like, you've got one of them that's as beloved as that, and you've done Remarkable. And uh, it's a shame we'll never get to see what his third one would have been. A film I want to finish off on that hasn't been mentioned so far... Um, I had a couple of minds, like, so I was thinking about Hellraiser as potentially being one as a, as a fantastic dark romance, a sort of da- a sexy dad. Uh, sorry, the sexy cad versus the good dad. Uh, uh, <laughs> I'm all here for sexy dad, woo! <laughs> reliable but boring, uh, Larry, you got the sexy cad, Frank, and I thought that tension was explored really well from the film. Brilliant imagery, very, very haunting, but the one I want to say instead... It's a David Cronenberg version of The Fly. Back when I was a kid, 
The Fly was like the horror film that uh, you'd all stay up late watching. It was a sort of horror film, but you'd all hand out the VHS to each other and uh, you know, you'd dare each other to see how far you could go with it. Now, the special effects for it still look awesome. Much like John Carpenter's The Thing, if there's something about well-done stop-motion stuff and practical effects that I reckon, you know, they don't date in the same way that CGI does. You know, CGI looks out of date the year after it comes out. And with these, uh, I think the effects were just absolutely phenomenal. You know, David Cronenberg does that sort of uh, decaying really well. You know, with body horror, he's obviously a big name in that. I reckon The Fly worked so well as this sort of small, intimate... Again, like Hellraiser, a dark romance film. In this case, it was about someone getting worse, someone, someone getting worse, you know, physically falling apart. And yet, you know, they still command your empathy by the end. Uh, you know, you see the fly too, which had still had a lot of the same gore, but just didn't have have the heart, didn't have the attention to characterization. But you guys fans of the fly? Oh, absolutely. That was my uh, first horror movie. So, yeah, it holds a special place in my heart. But you know what? I've probably not seen it for about 20 odd years. So I think I'd best buy this. I can't believe I don't own it, actually. This is scandalous. So thank you for reminding me. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it's um, one I'd only seen probably for the first time sometime in the last 10 years, I think. I was watching it with the wife, actually, and she couldn't look at Jeff Goldblum again for a long time afterwards. (laughs) And probably the same for me in Donuts, but that long time was probably only about 15 minutes. Because that's the one thing that I vividly remember from that film is (laughs) the way he has to eat. That really stood out for me. It's just so bizarre and gross and brilliant. On that image, it's time for us to go. Thank you very much for listening, and we hope to do plenty more of these in the future. Until then, folks, we wish you all a fond farewell and goodbye. Bye! Check out horrorcultfilms.co.uk Thanks for listening! Music provided by White Bat Audio.